0: you've got your Bibles with you, turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. The book of Ephesians, chapter 3. And so we are finishing a series of messages today on um, kind of what it is that we as a church ought to be pulling together towards. And what I want to do today is I want to kind of bring us back almost to the beginning and to talk about something very important. Now, a couple of weeks ago, if you were here a few weeks ago, in the previous series we were in, I... Um, I started a message out of the book of Hebrews talking about a uh, particular piece of art that had been on the great show Antiques Roadshow, right? Some of you remember that. Some of you were here for that. Does anybody remember the the sculptor that we talked about with that? Y'all didn't say. There wasn't, there was no announcement of a pop quiz happening today, right? It was Auguste Rodin. Except we have a picture of Rodin. This is him. Uh, this was, he was the guy, if you remember the story, this guy had, grandmother had given the family this sculpture and they took it into Antiques Roadshow and they determined it was authentic to him and was worth somewhere around $500,000, half a million dollars for this sculptor, sculpture that had been sitting in their living room, right? Now, here's the thing. If you know anything about Rodin, if you know any piece of artwork that he's done, there's probably one that you're familiar with. You might know his most famous sculpture. The what? the thinker, right? And so we got a picture of that here. It's the thinker. It's this pensive guy that's sitting there. He looks like he's just thinking. If you go to the garden in France where Rodin's work is kind of displayed, you'll see this sitting in the middle. Um, they've replicated it in cities all over the world as they kind of this struck a chord in an era of thinking and being a part of of this intellectual society and just the imagery there of a guy that looks like he's deep in thought. But you may not know that the original purpose of the thinker was not a statue by itself. That he originally did the thinker as a part of a grander project. Anybody know that? So it wasn't originally a stand-alone piece, it was a part of a larger piece. In fact, we have a picture, I think on the next one, of the larger piece. Now this is called a door, alright? And it was a door that a museum commissioned him to make, and this is a huge door. In fact, I think we've got a picture of a guy standing next to it to see. This is a normal-sized guy. So this door is 20 feet tall. 13 feet wide and 3 feet deep and you see this crazy stuff we'll talk about all this in a minute but at the very top of this right here is the thinker and so when you have this picture of the thinker the original model he's looking out over this door contemplating what's there you see that? So it's not just a general guy in thought somewhere. It's a guy that's deep in thought about whatever's on the door. Let's go back to the door. So you get what's happening in the door, right? No, you don't have any clue what's happening in the door. That was a that was a bad question. The door, interestingly enough, is called the gates of hell. And it is a visual depiction of Dante's Infernal, the first level. Now, here's what you give. You put all that together, all right? All these pieces. So what you have is the thinker sitting on the edge contemplating what eternity outside of a relationship with God really is. Now, when you just see a guy sitting there looking with his hand on his thing, that's not what you think, right? And you miss the bigger picture by focusing too much on a smaller detail. Here's what I want for us to do today, alright? Is to pull back and to say of all the things we've talked about over the last three weeks, we're going to remind ourselves in a minute what that is. I want us to make sure that we don't miss the big picture by focusing too closely on some other part. And I want us to remind ourselves what it is that we're truly about. And to ask the question, do we, have we experienced that? Are we moving forward in that? And what are we willing to do, to sacrifice to see it happen? We've been talking this month about pulling together. About all of us getting on the same side of the rope. And together exerting force in a direction that gives honor and glory to God and advances his kingdom. And kind of the centerpiece of that discussion has been our purpose statement as a church, which is that we exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. In the very first week, we talked about what it meant to glorify God, and the fact that glorifying God meant being the city on a hill, being um, the salt of the earth. Now we had to believe God to be able to do the supernatural, that we had to gather in this place, to scatter amongst the region, that we had to curate a culture of invitation, that we had to invite people, that we must remain generous, and that we had to keep our message clear that it was all about Jesus. In the second week we focused on the second phrase and they're leading people and the idea that God's mission has always been about people and that he is being patient with us as a church, patient with the church at large to make sure that we are doing what he's called us to do. That the mission of our lives, the purpose of our life is to reach people, to help people to understand that God loves them immensely beyond what they can imagine. We ask some difficult questions about what we're willing to do to see people reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some hypothetical questions about how far we're willing to go from what seems to be something easy like giving up our seat. All the way to big questions of a lot of discomfort. Discomfort. Last week we talked about that the goal is not just to get people here or to get people uh, in a place, but it is to lead them to become passionately devoted followers, full-on disciples of Jesus Christ. People that are living for Him. It's not just about conversion, it's about followers. Today we're going to focus on that last phrase, because that's where it all comes to a head. And that is that we don't want people just generally going in some direction. We want them to be living in the power and in the knowledge and in the grace and in the mercy and in the life-changing, dead-raising life that comes from Jesus. We're going to look today at a prayer in the book of Ephesians. It's actually the second prayer in the book of Ephesians. The first prayer, Paul prays that God will enlighten us, that we would know hope, that we would know wealth that is in Christ, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of Him. And then in the second prayer, he's going to come to this moment and ask to say, can we please remind ourselves, tie ourselves in, put ourselves in the process of remembering the moment that changed it all and living in the power of that moment. He's going to talk about the most important moment in the history of the world. The most important time in the history of the world. The most important event in the history of the world. And ask us if we have truly known it and believed it and experienced it and if it has changed our lives. Now I'm not talking about intellectual knowledge. I'm not talking about I've heard it. I'm not talking about, yes, I can agree with it. I'm talking about an experiential knowledge that will forever change the direction and the path of our lives because we have encountered Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, who died on the cross for our sins. I walked the aisle of First Baptist Church when I was nine years old. And I firmly believe that that is the moment of my salvation. I sat in a pew right over here on what is my left, your right, towards the back. It was a church at the balcony came way out. And so I was actually under the balcony, but I wasn't in the back row. Not against anybody that sits in the back row under the balcony. That's just not where we were, all right? It's not where my family's assigned seats were. And I remember sitting there for three or four weeks and just saying, Lord Jesus, please come. And I could not finish the statement into my heart. And then one day, Nine years old, First Baptist Church, singing just as I am. It is as Baptist as you can get. Now, I think we sang just as I am about two out of every four weeks. So it wasn't like it was unique, right? Sing, we didn't sing that one. We sang Jesus paid it all or I surrender all. It was always something with all. That's why I love that word all, right? And I said, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I firmly believe that that is the moment that I was saved. I believe that God began to grow me in the midst of that. When I was in, uh, after my 7th grade year, I went to a camp, church camp. And at the midst of that, I believe God radically changed how I viewed who He was. The year after that, I went to church camp. I remember in the youth group moment of talking that God radically called me to the ministry full time. But there was a moment in my life 20 years ago this year. When it became not just a... Sort of experiential moment. Not just a kind of knowledge. But it became an intimate understanding of who Christ is. 20 years ago, I was with a group of people from Union University. We went to this worship experience. We walked in. We had no idea what to expect. We knew that some people that were there going to be there. Were going to be speaking. Were going to be good. There were a couple of bands. We were college kids. We liked that we were going to be there. And we walked into the first night. The first session. And we began to sing. And we sang. And we sang. And we sang. Now, I know that sometimes y'all get uncomfortable if we sing too much or stand too much. I'm talking an hour and 15 minutes in, and there's no stopping. And I'm I'm a logical thinking kind of guy. And I'm thinking, I know they didn't hire somebody to come speak for five minutes. So whenever this guy gets up to speak, we're, we're still in for it, right? An hour and a half in... There was this sudden realization on me, I don't think anybody's speaking tonight. We sang for two hours as college students about the the wonder and the majesty of the name of Jesus. There were 2,500 college students in that room that night, and it was a life-changing moment. The next day, three guys spoke over the next two days that radically changed how I view the Lord and how I experienced Him. Louis Giglio and John Piper and a guy that grew up in this church, Dave Busby, spoke and it changed my life. Because God used them to do it. And there was a particular moment in Dave Busby's talks when I remember this specifically, Dave was speaking. And he talked about the difference between knowing and experiencing. And he talked about when he was growing up, and I I resonated so well with this, and maybe you resonate with this as well, but when I was growing up, that there were certain meals that my mom would cook that we were less than thrilled were on the menu for that evening. Now, I don't know what yours were, but I can tell you what mine was. Salmon croquettes. How many of you ever had a salmon croquette right there, Right? Every once in a while you'd eat your salmon croquette, there'd be one of those little white things in the midst of the salmon croquette, right? And not only did we have the salmon croquettes, my mom's a wonderful cook by the way, nobody tell her I preached on this today, I'll tell her not to listen this week. But it was salmon croquettes and peas, green peas, because that's what you got with salmon croquettes in the south. I don't know what they do over in the Mediterranean, but in the south you eat some peas with your salmon croquettes. Some mashed potatoes and peas and salmon croquettes and cornbread. That's what we had, alright? Can I get a uh in the house of the Lord today? Yeah, alright? And when mom had seen that we had not been filled with the salmon croquettes, when dad, who was her defender, had seen we might not have been enjoying the salmon croquettes as much as we should have, he would say to us, she would say to us, you know, there are starving children. And her particular place of choice was Africa. Now yours may have been China, hers was Africa. There are starving children in Africa who would love to be able to have what you have on your plate. I knew that when I was 1998. So how many years after the salmon croquet incident was that? It was a long time, right? I went to uh, Nava Cantagem, Brazil. And I stood in an area that used to be a trash dump. And I saw... Kids who were starving. There's a difference in knowing it and seeing it and experiencing it. My prayer, my goal, my desire for us as a church is that we would be a place where people don't just hear the story of Jesus. Where people don't just understand the intellectual capacity that they have to understand the story of Jesus, but that they stand at Navacantaja in Brazil and experience the reality of Jesus. Now here's a question for you. Have you experienced, known the power and the legacy and the truth of Jesus? I'm not talking about I grew up in church and I can tell you the Jesus stories. I'm talking about has he radically changed your life. Let me tell you something. That weekend that I spent on January 1st to January 3rd, 1997, forever changed my life. And I want to be a place. Well, we're not just about getting people in here to ascribe to a certain set of beliefs. Although belief is important. Or to get them to do a certain set of moral behaviors. Although there is a moral component to following Jesus. I want to be a part of a church where people are radically transformed by the reality of their experience with Jesus. So how do we get there? Ephesians chapter 3. Now Ephesians chapter 3 starting in verse 14 which is where we're going to be. Is a prayer that Paul is praying. Now here's the thing. Paul actually starts this prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1. You say, well why aren't we going to Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1? Because Paul got distracted in praying. Anybody here ever get distracted in praying? Like you start to pray, you're praying, Lord, I just pray for my kids, I pray for what's happening with them at school. Oh, yes, yeah, school, I forgot, we've got that parent thing on Thursday. I need to reply to that email that we're going to be there for Thursday night's prayer thing. Oh, yeah, we're supposed to bring cookies. You know what, cookies would be really good right now. I mean, I mean I've mean, i got some frozen ones in the, I could put that up real quick. Hey, kids, you think you want some cookies tonight? And then you're gone, right? Well, Paul, here's the good thing, if you ever get distracted in praying, so did Paul. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, this ain't going to be on the screen. If you've got it open, you can see it. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, he's starting to pray. And then he goes, wait, wait, wait a minute. I've got to talk to you something about the mystery of the church. So he goes on and talks about, until verse 13, the mystery of the church. And he comes back in verse 14 and says, oh yeah, let me get back to what I was praying. Verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That's important here. It's not just that he's praying, it's that he's kneeling. Now, I know that kneeling is kind of a, a symbol of prayer in our day. It's kneeling is the, a, a way of prayer in our days, and it was not theirs as well. But the primary way people prayed was standing up. Paul was Jewish, and the primary way that Jewish people prayed was standing up. The only time in life you kneeled is in a dire situation, in a time of intense supplication before someone or before your God. And so when Paul says, I kneel, this is an intense prayer. This isn't just a casual prayer. This is a dedicated, intense prayer. Verse 16. I pray. That He may grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through His Spirit. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Here's what I want you to see in the midst of that. We're going to talk about Ephesians 3, 14-21, where it fits in the midst of the entire book of Ephesians. And then we're going to talk about how we do what we need to do as a church and as individuals. What I want you to see is the ending of this prayer first. Specifically verse 19, and it says that he's praying all of this is to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. We'll get back to that. But then this, that is just a remarkable statement. So that you, that is the church, that is us, that is followers of Jesus Christ, that is people who have experienced Him, that we may be filled, may be filled, completely full with all the fullness of God. The end of the prayer is that you and I would be walking around on this earth full of the presence, of the power, of the authority, of the vision, of the character, of the purpose. Of the truth of God now what that means is that he intends for us what paul's prayer for us what paul's prayer for the ephesians is that we would live lives radically altered radically changed radically different because god dwells inside of us that we wouldn't settle for a little bit of god or a little bit of change but that we would be radically transformed for the glory of god and the advancement of his kingdom Now, when you walk around, it's not just you doing the best you can, making it work as long as it can, that you are given the power of God. Now, here's why Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 are so important. It's because they are the bridge between the first three chapters of Ephesians and the second three chapters of Ephesians. And in the first three chapters of Ephesians, he's talking about what we have in Christ and how unbelievable it is that we have been saved, radically transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses. Here's what we need to understand. Sins don't make people bad. Sin makes people dead. Right? That's what scripture says. That's not me. That's what scripture says, right? When we think, well, man, he just, he got off on the wrong path and, I mean, sin's turned him into a bad person. No, sin for all of us makes us. Dead, He says, you were, this is the Ephesian church, these are the people that are the people of God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world. He is reminding them, the first part of Ephesians is the theology part. It is the example part of what we should believe, that Christ saved us from our sins. He says, and that's the way the people in the world are right now goes on to say, we used to live that way. Verse 4, this is the gospel. The gospel, if you want to put it in two words, are the words, but God. You were dead in your sins, living among your fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love that he had for us, made us what? Alive. You see, the gospel isn't about turning bad people good. It's about raising dead people to life. Made us alive when Christ, even though we were dead. You're saved by grace. And that we are to be the display of what he's done to the people around us. Look at this guy and what I've done in his life. And then verse 8. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, this whole description of the fact that Christ has saved us. And then, because of that, as a church, we are unified in Him. Even though we are different, even though we have different gifts, even though we have different talents, and we only have different places, we have different thoughts, that we are unified in Christ. And in the midst of that, we are to take that gospel to the Gentiles, to those outside the faith. Now, here's the reality. You and I are Gentiles, right? Amen. Amen. And so what does he mean for us? We are the Gentiles. What do you mean take it? It means you take it to anybody and the people that you think are farthest from God. You keep taking it. And so in the first three chapters, it's this is who you are. This is who you are. and Now you've been put together. Go to the Gentiles. And then chapter 4, after this prayer, he begins to list the how to do or the what to do because of that. In fact, chapter 4, verse 1 says that we are to live a life worthy of the calling that is on our lives. Worthy of the calling that is on our lives. Worthy of the calling. A calling where God sent His Son to die for our sins. We are to live a life worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus. I don't think you got that. Because if you got that, you'd realize that can't be done. Not in our human strength. And he tells them, well, here's the way you do that. Here's the way you live a life worthy. And he talks starting in verse chapter 4 about living a life worthy of Christ in the church. And then he talks about in the world. And then he talks about in your home. And then he talks about your work. And then in chapter 6, he talks about to do it against our enemy. And so chapter 4 and following is the what to do because of what Christ has done. And then right in the middle of that, verses 14 through 21, is this description of then this is how you do it. So that's what I want to focus on for the next few minutes. How do we do what God has called us to do? To be salt and light. To reach those that are far from God. To disciple them to be followers of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of all of that, bring them to a place where they have a life-altering, life-changing, forever-changing experience with Christ. There's only two things that it tells us here. First of all, we need to learn to depend on strength that only comes from God. That's what Paul prays for, right? Verse 14, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. In verse um, 16, I pray that he may grant you. My prayer is that he would give you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with his power in your inner being. Can I just tell you a truth that you know but sometimes need to be stated again? That we will never be able to accomplish what God intends for us to accomplish on our own. And if you have complete control over everything in your life and you can get it done in your own strength, then you are not doing what God's called you to do. Because he's got bigger plans for you than that. I truly believe that God has amazing plans for this church. And I think if we knew some of them now, we would go, well, (laughs) we can't do that. This church will never do that. And my first response would be, in our own power and our own strength, you're absolutely right. But in the power and the strength of God, who has equipped us with the Holy Spirit and has immeasurable riches at his disposal, anything is possible. We will not stand where God calls us to stand without strength from God. We cannot handle what God wants from us or from our church on our own. When we try to do it on our own, we are like trying to carry water in a paper bag. Like it may last for a minute, but eventually what's going to happen? you You remember those old lunch bags, paper sacks? If you got anything wet in there and it started dripping, what happened when you picked the bag up? Right? We need to ask the Lord to continually give us the capacity to handle what He's calling us to do. Stuart Briscoe, who's a pastor, tells the story. It's, it's not a true story, but it's still good. About a boy who fell into a barrel of molasses. And he prayed, Lord, make my capacity equal to this opportunity. That's the way I think about when I sit down at Mama's French Toast Breakfast at Cracker Barrel, right? I shouldn't have done that to you in the morning, I know. We pray, Lord, we're only going to do this in your strength. Now, his strength comes from two places. First of all, it says in here, in this passage, according to the riches of his glory. Now, it doesn't do any good if we go and ask for strength for someone that doesn't have any. But guess what? When we go asking according to, not out of, but according to the strength of His glory, we are talking to the one that is omnipotent, that is omniscient, that is omnipresent, that is infinite, that is eternal, that is immutable. He is and ever will be completely capable of doing all things. We are asking for strength from the one who does not have a limit to the strength that he owns. Every person on this earth has a limit to what they have. Even Bill Gates could be tapped out if enough people went at him at the right time and he gave out of it. God is infinite. And not only does he ask... According to his wealth. Secondly, he asked based on the fact that the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us. The most amazing part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only did he save us from our sins, but he spent his spirit to dwell within us. And as we depend on the strength that comes from His wealth, the Spirit grows in its influence in our lives. As the Spirit grows in its influence in our lives, it gives us strength to depend on the strength according to His wealth. That lets the Spirit grow in its influence on our lives. And as the influence of the Spirit in our lives grows, we tap into the strength more and more. It's an ever-continuing cycle of being strengthened by the Lord. And I want you to understand something very clearly. When Paul writes this letter, he is specific to say... Do not strengthen yourself. He doesn't say go out there and make yourself strong. He says be strengthened. It's a passive tense. It's the idea that we depend on God to give us the strength to do it. And so we depend on strength that only comes from God. Secondly, we depend on a love that only comes from God. So he prays that they would be strengthened in their inner being by according to the riches of God's immense power. And that as the Spirit dwells within us, he prays secondly, that being rooted and established in love, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love, To know Christ's love that surpasses all knowledge. You see, we live this radically transformed life. We live as a church radically transformed by Him for His glory. We do that coming out of a place of realizing that no matter what happens in our lives, we are completely accepted and loved by our Savior. We are secure in him and he gives a description he says that we are to look at how high and how wide and how deep and how long how high and how wide how deep and how long how high and how wide how deep and how long high enough to get you to a holy god that has standards of perfection Deep enough to pull you from the very bottom of your existence. Long enough that no matter how far you have run from God, He is still ahead of you waiting on you. Wide enough to embrace you wherever you are. I think of Old Testament stories, New Testament stories, where people experience the high, deep, long, wide love of God. I think of Hosea, who showed that kind of love to Gomer, his wife, when she had walked away, when she had abandoned, and he still reached out with the high, deep, long, wide love that God had given him to show God's love for his people. I think about Jonah, who ran from the Lord, and when he ran and got on the ship, guess who was there waiting on him? God Almighty, that had called him in the first place, because he had a decision to make about following God and God wasn't letting him off the hook. I think about Zacchaeus who had run from the Lord into his profession and yet when the moment came the love was deep enough to pull him out. How wide, how high, how deep and how long. As a staff we've been reading a book about um, the characteristics of God that are not true of us. And the ten characteristics of God that we cannot be like. Things like omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence. And one of them that we read was about his infinite, self-existent self. There's a quote, not in this book, but in a book that I'd read previously by a guy named A.W. Tozer. I'm going to put it on the screen. Because I just want you to think about the love of God... In this way. Because God is self existence, his love has no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of spotless purity. I just wanted to say quintessence, alright? Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. Never ending. You know what I love about that picture of the height, the depth, the width, and the length? That if you literally try to graph it out or draw it, the only image that really comes to mind that makes any sense of it is a cross. A three-dimensional cross. And he says, my prayer is, not that you'll just hear about, not that you'll just understand that, yes, that exists, but that you will experience The love that comes only from God. Here's the thing. If we're going to do what God's called us to do, if we're going to be the church that God's called us to be, if we want people to be encountering Jesus Christ in all of His glory, then we have to be willing to understand and then demonstrate the love that only comes from God. Then I love the picture of what's after that. He's praying that they'll be strengthened and that they'll understand love. And that when they do that, that they will be filled with all the fullness of God. And then verses 20 and 21. To him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him Be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him who is able to do above and beyond all that we can ask or think. Here's the truth. When you look at that in the original language, Paul makes up a word there. It's like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. All right? It is super above, beyond anything we could ask or think or imagine that God will do in our lives. Because God is so great and so good, what He promises us is not only is He going to accomplish something in the world that we will not believe, but that He's going to do in it, do it in and through us, and that we get to be a part of the victory parade. And I just want a lot of people with me. Went to a high school football game on Friday night. It was a very good high school football game. It was between Beach, where my son is now a freshman, um, and Hillsboro. In tightly contested football game. At the end of the first half, it was 14 to seven. Hillsborough was winning. Beach is undefeated, rated by some people the number one team in the state in their classification. Hillsborough is in their division and is considered their greatest contender challenger right now. They're fully healthy again. It was an intense game. It was homecoming at Beach, which meant every seat was taken and the sidelines were full. We'd all kind of come, and Eli and I stayed for the whole game. It was cool, and with homecoming festivities, my girls, Susan took the girls home. And so the second half, Eli's a teenager, so he's not hanging out with Dad. Y'all understand that, right? And so I'm by myself, and so I find my way down to the preacher corner. Now, I know you don't know there's a preacher corner, and I didn't either. till I got down there, there were four of us preachers from around the area standing together, all right? I said well we're going to form a line right here in Hillsboro can't cross it we're about the 20 yard line We all had kids in the beach system The game uh, was back and forth 14 to 7 Hillsboro Beach came out scored right in the first to the 2nd 14 to 14 Beach scored again on the next drive 20 to 14 they missed the extra point it got blocked 20 to 14 for the fourth quarter entering the fourth quarter and Hillsboro three times had the ball in beach territory around the 15-yard line, and three times did not score. They kicked it back to him with about a minute left, and Hillsborough threw a last-minute desperation pass, and it was intercepted. Beach won. Here's what I want to talk about, alright? When beach won, that sideline erupted people ran out onto the field to celebrate with the team like they had a part in the actual victory. Now, I know we all are the 12th man, but really, we didn't do anything. I criticized coaching, because that's what you do. Both teams gave suggestions. Here's the thing. They never came over and asked me for a real suggestion to what I could do. Right? But when that game was over... Everybody on that beach Sylvan celebrated like they had been on the field. Here's the great thing about God. We didn't have anything to do with the victory He won. But He invites us to be part of the victory celebration. And we get all the benefits of a game that has been won. We exist. To glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Over the last four weeks, we've talked about a lot of things that we need to begin to pull together on. And you say, well, well, what does that look like? Well, here's the truth. I don't know exactly. But that's praying about it. Thinking about it. As deacons, we're talking about it. We've actually got two or three groups of people in the church talking about different aspects of this. Looking at ways to bring recommendations or thoughts to it. But here's what I do know beyond a shadow of a doubt. That whatever comes, my prayer is that it would lead people to experience Jesus. Life transforming, dead to life raising Jesus. And if we're not doing that... If that's not our goal, if our goal is just to maintain and be comfortable and good, and we're kind of good where we are, let's just keep things the way they are. They've worked for us before. If we're not after people experiencing life change through Jesus, then I really don't know the reason we exist. Because I'm here as your pastor. Pastor. To ask the question, how do we lead people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus? And whatever it may appear that that's what we ought to do, we pursue it with all that we have, no matter what it means for me personally. And that's my prayer for us. In just a moment, we're going to sing. We're going to sing a time of response. And I ask you to do this the first week, and I'm going to ask you to do it again today. We're, we're finishing this series. That doesn't mean the work and the discussions and all that's finishing. In fact, there'll be ongoing things for the next few months, and there'll be recommendations at some point come back. There'll be asked of you to be participants in some things at times. But none of that's going to matter if we're not strengthened by the Holy Spirit and grounded in His love. And so I'm going to ask you during this response time for you to come and to pray. Some of, you, some of you can pray right where you are, but I'm going to ask many of you to come forward during this response time to this place that we will make an altar unto the Lord because we're going to dedicate it for this moment to Him. I'm praying that God would allow us to be the people and to do the things that draw people into a life-changing relationship with Him. Let's pray together.